Part 2, Chapter 4, Section 2 of Some Do Not by Ford Maddox Ford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part 2, Chapter 4, Section 2. She was alone with Teachens and the quiet day. She said to herself, Now he must take me in his arms. He must, he must. The deepest of her instincts came to the surface from beneath layers of thought hardly known to her. She could feel his arms round her. She had in her nostrils the peculiar scent of his hair, like the scent of the skin of an apple, but very faint. You must, you must, she said to herself. There came back to her, overpoweringly, the memory of their drive together and the moment, the overwhelming moment, when, climbing out of the white fog into the blinding air, she had felt the impulse of his whole body towards her and the impulse of her whole body towards him. A sudden lapse, like the momentary dream when you fall. She saw the white disk of the sun over the silver mist and behind them was the long, warm night. Teachens sat, huddled rather together, dejectedly, the firelight playing on the silver places of his hair. It had grown nearly dark outside. They had a sense of the large room that, almost week by week, had grown, for its gleams of gilding and hand-polished dark woods, more like the great dining-room at the Duchemans. He got down from the fire-seat with a weary movement, as if the fire-seat had been very high. He said, with a little bitterness, but as if with more fatigue, "'Well, I've got the business of telling McMaster that I'm leaving the office. That, too, won't be an agreeable affair. Not that what poor Vinnie thinks matters.' He added, "'It's queer, dear.' In the tumult of her emotion, she was almost certain that he had said, "'Dear.' "'Not three hours ago my wife used to me almost the exact words you have just used.' almost the exact words. She talked of her inability to sleep at night for thinking of immense spaces full of pain that was worse at night, and she too said that she could not respect me. She sprang up. Oh, she said, she didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. Almost every man who is a man must do as you are doing. But don't you see, it's a desperate attempt to get you to stay, an attempt on moral lines. How can we leave any stone unturned that could keep us from losing our men? She added, and it was another stone that she didn't leave unturned. Besides, how can you reconcile it with your sense of duty, even from your point of view? You're more useful, you know you're more useful to your country here than... He stood over her, stooping a little, somehow suggesting great gentleness and concern. I can't reconcile it with my conscience, he said. In this affair there is nothing that any man can reconcile with his conscience. I don't mean that we oughtn't to be in this affair and on the side whereon. We ought, but I'll put to you things I have put to no other soul. The simplicity of his revelation seemed to her to put to shame any of the glibnesses she had heard. It appeared to her as if a child were speaking. He described the disillusionment it had cost him personally as soon as this country had come into the war. He even described the sunlit heather landscape of the north where naively he had made his tranquil resolution to join the French Foreign Legion as a common soldier and his conviction that that would give him, as he called it, clean bones again. That, he said, had been straightforward. Now there was nothing straightforward, for him or for any man. 
One could have fought with a clean heart for a civilization, if you like, for the 18th century against the 20th, since that was what fighting for France against the enemy countries meant. But our coming in had changed the aspect at once. It was one part of the 20th century using the 18th as a cat's paw to bash the other half of the 20th. It was true there was nothing else for it. And as long as we did it in a decent spirit, it was just bearable. One could keep at one's job, which was faking statistics against the other fellow, until you were sick and tired of faking and your brain reeled, and then some. It was probably impolitic to fake, to overstate, a case against enemy nations. The chickens would come home to roost in one way or another, probably. Perhaps they wouldn't. That was a matter for one's superiors, obviously. And the first gang had been simple, honest fellows, stupid but relatively disinterested. But now, what was one to do? He went on, almost mumbling. She had suddenly a clear view of him as a man extraordinarily clear-sighted in the affairs of others, in great affairs, but in his own so simple as to be almost a baby, and gentle, and extraordinarily unselfish. He didn't betray one thought of self-interest, not one. He was saying, but now, with this crowd of boodlers, supposing one's asked to manipulate the figures of millions of pairs of boots in order to force someone else to send some miserable general and his troops to, say, Salonica, when they and you and common sense and everyone and everything else know it's disastrous. And from that to monkeying with our own forces, starving particular units for political... He was talking to himself, not to her. And indeed, he said, I can't, you see, talk really before you. For all I know, your sympathies, perhaps your activities, are with the enemy nations. She said passionately, They're not, they're not. How dare you say such a thing? He answered, It doesn't matter. No, I'm sure you're not. But anyhow, these things are official. One can't, if one's scrupulous, even talk about them. And then... You see, it means such infinite deaths of men, such an infinite prolongation, all this interference for side ends. I seem to see these fellows with clouds of blood over their heads, and then I'm to carry out their orders because they're my superiors. But helping them means unnumbered deaths. He looked at her with a faint, almost humorous smile. You see, he said, we're perhaps not so very far apart. You mustn't think you're the only one that sees all the deaths and all the sufferings. All, you see. I, too, am a conscientious objector. My conscience won't let me continue any longer with these fellows. She said, but isn't there any other? He interrupted. No, there's no other course. One is either a body or a brain in these affairs. I suppose I'm more brain than body. I suppose so. Perhaps I'm not. But my conscience won't let me use my brain in this service, so I've a great hulking body. I'll admit I'm probably not much good, but I've nothing to live for. What I stand for isn't any more in this world. What I want, as you know, I can't have. So, she exclaimed bitterly, Oh, say it, say it. Say that your large hulking body will stop two bullets in front of two small anemic fellows. And how can you say you'll have nothing to live for? You'll come back. You'll do your good work again. You know you did good work. He said, yes, I believe I did. I used to despise it, but I've come to believe I did. But no, they'll never let me back. They've got me out with all sorts of bad marks against me. They'll pursue me systematically. You see, in such a world as this, an idealist, or 
Perhaps it's only a sentimentalist. Must be stoned to death. He makes the others so uncomfortable. He haunts them at their golf. No, they'll get me one way or the other. And some fellow, McMaster here, will do my jobs. He won't do them so well, but he'll do them more dishonestly. Well, no, I oughtn't to say dishonestly. He'll do them with enthusiasm and righteousness. He'll fulfil the orders of his superiors with an immense docility and unction. He'll fake figures against our allies with the black enthusiasm of a Calvin. And when that war comes, he'll do the requisite faking with the righteous wrath of Jehovah smiting the priests of Baal. And he'll be right. It's all we're fitted for. We ought never to have come into this war. We ought to have snaffled other people's colonies as the price of neutrality. Oh, Valentine Wallop said, how can you so hate your country? He said with great earnestness, don't say it, don't believe it, don't even for a moment think it. I love every inch of its fields and every plant in the hedgerows. Comfrey, mullein, pagels, long red purples that liberal shepherds give a grosser name and all the rest of the rubbish. You remember the field between the Duchemans and your mothers? And we have always been boodlers and robbers and reavers and pirates and cattle thieves, and so we've built up the great tradition that we love. But for the moment it's painful. Our present crowd is not more corrupt than Walpole's, but one's too near them. One sees of Walpole that he consolidated the nation by building up the national debt. One doesn't see his methods. My son or his son will only see the glory of the boodle we make out of this show, or rather out of the next. He won't know about the methods. They'll teach him at school that across the counties went the sound of bugles that his father knew, though that was another discreditable affair. But you, Valentine Wallop exclaimed, you, what will you do after the war? I, he said rather bewilderedly, I, oh, I shall go into the old furniture business. I've been offered a job. She didn't believe he was serious. He hadn't, she knew, ever thought about his future. But suddenly she had a vision of his white head and pale face in the black glooms of a shop full of dusty things. He would come out, get heavily onto a dusty bicycle and ride off to a cottage sale. She cried out, Why don't you do it at once? Why don't you take the job at once? for in the back of the dark shop he would at least be safe. He said, oh no, not at this time. Beside the old furniture trade's probably not itself for the minute. He was obviously thinking of something else. I've probably been a low cat, he said, wringing your heart with my doubts. But I wanted to see where our similarities come in. We've always been, or we've seemed always to me, so alike in our thoughts. I dare say I wanted you to respect me. Oh, I respect you. I respect you, she said. You're as innocent as a child. He went on. And I wanted to get some thinking done. It hasn't been often of late that one has had a quiet room and a fire and you to think in front of. You do make one collect one's thoughts. I've been very muddled till today, till five minutes ago. Do you remember our drive? You analysed my character. I'd never have let another soul. But you see, don't you see? She said, no, what am I to see? I remember, he said, that I'm certainly not an English country gentleman now, picking up the gossip of the horse markets and saying, let the country go to hell for me. She said, did I say that? Yes, I said that. The deep waves of emotion came over her. She trembled. 
She stretched out her arms. She thought she stretched out her arms. He was hardly visible in the firelight. But she could see nothing. She was blind for tears. She could hardly be stretching out her arms, for she had both hands to her handkerchief on her eyes. He said something. It was no word of love, or she would have held it. It began with, well, I must be... He was silent for a long time. She imagined herself to feel great waves coming from him to her. But he wasn't in the room. The rest, till that moment at the war office, had been pure agony and unrelenting. Her mother's paper cut down her money. No orders for cereals came in. Her mother, obviously, was failing. The eternal diatribes of her brother were like lashes upon her skin. He seemed to be praying teachings to death. Of teachings she saw and heard nothing. At the McMaster's she heard once that he had just gone out. It added to her desire to scream when she saw a newspaper. Poverty invaded them. The police raided the house in search of her brother and his friends. Then her brother went to prison somewhere in the Midlands. The friendliness of their former neighbours turned to surly suspicion. They could get no milk. Food became almost unprocurable without going to long distances. For three days Mrs. Wanup was clean out of her mind. Then she grew better and began to write a new book. It promised to be rather good, but there was no publisher. Edward came out of prison, full of good humour and boisterousness. They seemed to have had a great deal to drink in prison. But hearing that his mother had gone mad over that disgrace, after a terrible scene with Valentine, in which he accused her of being the mistress of teachings and therefore militarist, he consented to let his mother use her influence, of which she still had some, to get him appointed as an A.B. on a minesweeper. Great winds became an agony to Valentine Wanup, in addition to the unbearable sounds of firing that came continuously over the sea. Her mother grew much better. She took pride in having a son in a service. She was then the more able to appreciate the fact that her paper stopped payment altogether. A small mob on the 5th of November burned Mrs Wanup in effigy in front of their cottage and broke their lower windows. Mrs. Wanup ran out and, in the illumination of the fire, knocked down two farm labourer hobbledehoys. It was terrible to see Mrs. Wanup's grey hair in the firelight. After that, the butcher refused the meat altogether, ration card or no ration card. It was imperative that they should move to London. The marsh horizon became obscured with giant stilts, the air above it filled with aeroplanes, the roads covered with military cars. There was then no getting away from the sounds of the war. Just as they had decided to move, Teachens came back. It was, for a moment, heaven to have him in this country, but when, a month later, Valentine Wanup saw him for a minute, he seemed very heavy, aged and dull. It was then almost as bad as before, for it seemed to Valentine as if he hardly had his reason. On hearing that Teachens was to be quartered, or at any rate occupied, in the neighbourhood of Ealing, Mrs. Wanup at once took a small house in Bedford Park, whilst to make ends meet, for her mother made terribly little, Valentine Wanup took a post as athletic mistress in a great school in a not very near suburb. Thus, though Teachens came in for a cup of tea almost every afternoon with Mrs. Wanup in the dilapidated little suburban house, Valentine Wanup hardly ever saw him. 
The only free afternoon she had was the Friday, and on that day she still regularly chaperoned Mrs. Dusherman, meeting her at Charing Cross towards noon and taking her back to the same station in time to catch the last train to Rye. On Saturdays and Sundays she was occupied all day in typing her mother's manuscript. Of Teachens, then, she saw almost nothing. She knew that his poor mind was empty of facts and of names, but her mother said he was a great help to her. Once provided with facts, his mind worked out sound Tory conclusions or quite startling and attractive theories with extreme rapidity. This Mrs. Wannup found of the greatest use to her whenever, though it wasn't now very often, she had an article to write for an excitable newspaper. She still, however, contributed to her failing organ of opinion, though it paid her nothing. Mrs. Dusherman, then, Valentine Wannup still chaperoned, though there was no bond any more between them. Valentine knew, for instance, perfectly well that Mrs. Dusherman, after she had been seen off by train from Charing Cross, got out at Clapham Junction, took a taxicab back to Gray's Inn after dark, and spent the night with McMaster, and Mrs. Dusherman knew quite well that Valentine knew. It was a sort of parade of circumspection and rightness, and they kept it up even after, at a sinister registry office, the wedding had taken place, Valentine being the one witness and an obscure-looking substitute for the usual pew-opener another. There seemed to be by then no very obvious reason why Valentine should support Mrs. McMaster any more on these rather dreary occasions, but Mrs. McMaster said she might just as well until they saw fit to make the marriage public. There were, Mrs. McMaster said, censorious tongues, and even if these were confuted afterwards, it is difficult, if not impossible, to outrun scandal. Besides, Mrs. McMaster was of opinion that the McMaster afternoons with these geniuses must be a liberal education for Valentine. But as Valentine sat most of the time at the tea-table near the door, it was the backs and side faces of the distinguished rather than their intellects with which she was most acquainted. Occasionally, however, Mrs. Dusherman would show Valentine, as an enormous privilege, one of the letters to herself from men of genius, usually North British, written as a rule from the continent or more distant and peaceful climates, for most of them believed it their duty in these hideous times to keep alive in the world the only glimmering spark of beauty. Couched in terms so eulogistic as to resemble those used in passionate love letters by men more profane, these epistles recounted or consulted Mrs. Dusherman as to their love affairs with foreign princesses, the progress of their ailments or the progresses of their souls towards those higher regions of morality in which floated their so beautiful souled correspondent. The letters entertained Valentine, and indeed she was entertained by that whole mirage. It was only the McMaster's treatment of her mother that finally decided Valentine that this friendship had died, for the friendships of women are very tenacious things, surviving astonishing disillusionments and Valentine Wannup was a woman of more than usual loyalty. Indeed, if she couldn't respect Mrs. Dusherman on the old grounds, she could very really respect her for her tenacity of purpose, her determination to advance McMaster, and for the sorts of ruthlessness that she put into these pursuits. 
Valentine's affection had indeed survived even Edith Ethel's continued denigrations of Teachens, for Edith Ethel regarded Teachens as a clog round her husband's neck, if only because he was a very unpopular man, grown personally rather unpresentable, and always extremely rude to the geniuses on Fridays. Edith Ethel, however, never made these complaints that grew more and more frequent as more and more the distinguished flock to the Fridays before McMaster and they ceased very suddenly, and in a way that struck Valentine as odd. Mrs. Dushiman's grievance against Teachens was that, McMaster being a weak man, Teachens had acted as his banker until, what with interest and the rest of it, McMaster owed Teachens a great sum, several thousand pounds. And there had been no real reason. McMaster had spent most of the money either on costly furnishings for his rooms or on his costly journeys to Rye. On the one hand, Mrs. Dushiman could have found McMaster all the bric-a-brac he could possibly have wanted from amongst the things at the rectory, where no one would have missed them. And on the other hand, she, Mrs. Dushiman, would have paid all McMaster's travelling expenses. She had had unlimited money from her husband, who never asked for accounts. But whilst Titian still had influence with McMaster, he had used it uncompromisingly against this course, giving him the delusion... It enraged Mrs. Dushiman to think that it would have been dishonourable, so that McMaster had continued to draw upon him. And, most enraging of all, at a period when she had had a power of attorney over all Mr. Dushiman's fortune, and could perfectly easily have sold out something that no one would have missed for the couple of thousand or so that McMaster owed, Teachens had very forcibly refused to allow McMaster to agree to anything of the sort, he had again put into McMaster's weak head that it would be dishonourable. But Mrs. Dushiman, and she closed her lips determinately after she had said it, knew perfectly well Teachin's motive. So long as McMaster owed him money, he imagined that they couldn't close their doors upon him. And their establishment was beginning to be a place where you meet people of great influence who might well get for a person as lazy as Teachin's a sinecure that would suit him. Teachens, in fact, knew which side his bread was buttered. For what, Mrs. Dushiman asked, could there have been dishonourable about the arrangement she had proposed? Practically the whole of Mr. Dushiman's money was to come to her. He was by then insane. It was, therefore, morally her own. But immediately after that, Mr. Dushiman having been certified, the estate had fallen into the hands of the lunacy commissioners, and there had been no further hope of taking the capital. Now, her husband being dead, it was in the hands of trustees, Mr. Dushiman having left the whole of his property to Magdalene College and merely the income to his widow. The income was very large, but where, with their expenses, with the death duties and taxation, which were by then merciless, was Mrs. Dushiman to find the money? She was to be allowed, under her husband's will, enough capital to buy a pleasant little place in Surrey, with rather a nice lot of land, enough to let McMaster know some of the leisures of a country gentleman's lot. They were going in for shorthorns, and there was enough land to give them a small golf course, and, in the autumn a little, oh, mostly rough, shooting for McMaster to bring his friends down to. It would just run to that. Oh, no ostentation, merely a nice little place. As an amusing detail, the villagers there already called McMaster squire, and the women curtsied to him. 
but Valentine Wannop would understand that with all these expenses they couldn't find the money to pay off Teachens. Besides, Mrs McMaster said she wasn't going to pay off Teachens. He had had his chance once, now he could go without for her. McMaster would have to pay it himself, and he would never be able to, his contribution to their housekeeping being what it was. And there were going to be complications. McMaster wondered about their little place in Surrey, saying that he would consult Teachens about this and that alteration. But over the door sill of that place, the foot of Teachens was never going to go. Never. It would mean a good deal of unpleasantness, or rather it would mean one sharp crunch, and then Napu Fini. Mrs Dushiman sometimes, and with great effect, condescended to use one of the more picturesque phrases of the day. To all these diatribes, Valentine Wannup answered hardly anything. It was no particular concern of hers, even if for a moment she felt proprietarily towards Christopher as she did now and then. She felt no particular desire that his intimacy with the McMaster should be prolonged, because she knew he could have no particular desire for its prolongation. She imagined him turning them down with an unspoken and good-humoured jibe. And indeed she agreed on the whole with Edith Ethel. It was demoralising for a weak little man like Vincent to have a friend with an ever-open purse beside him. Titchens ought not to have been princely. It was a defect, a quality that she did not personally admire in him. As to whether it would or wouldn't have been dishonourable for Mrs Dusherman to take her husband's money and give it to McMaster, she kept an open mind. To all intents and purposes, the money was Mrs Dusherman's, and if Mrs Dusherman had then paid Christopher off, it would have been sensible. She could see that later it had become very inconvenient. There were, however, male standards to be considered, and McMaster at least passed for a man. Teachens, who was wise enough in the affairs of others, had in that probably been wise, for there might have been great disagreeableness with trustees and heirs at law had Mrs. Dusherman's subtraction of a couple of thousand pounds from the Dusherman estate afterwards come to light. The Wannops had never been large property owners as a family, but Valentine had heard enough of collateral wranglings over small family dishonesties to know how very disagreeable these could be. So she had made little or no comment. Sometimes she had even faintly agreed as to the demoralisation of McMaster, and that had sufficed. For Mrs Dusherman had been certain of her rightness and cared nothing at all for the opinion of Valentine Wannop, or else took it for granted. And when Teachens had been gone to France for a little time, Mrs Dusherman seemed to forget the matter, contenting herself with saying that he might very likely not come back. He was the sort of clumsy man who generally got killed. In that case, since no IOUs or paper had passed, Mrs Teachens would have no claim. So that would be all right. But two days after the return of Christopher and that was how Valentine knew he had come back, Mrs. Dusherman, with a lowering brow, exclaimed, That oaf Teachens is in England, perfectly safe and sound, and now the whole miserable business of Vincent's indebtedness. Oh! She had stopped so suddenly and so markedly that even the stoppage of Valentine's own heart couldn't conceal the oddness from her. Indeed, it was as if there were an interval before she completely realised what the news was, and as if during that interval she said to herself, It's very queer, it's exactly as if Edith Ethel has stopped abusing him on my account. 
as if she knew. But how could Edith Ethel know that she loved the man who had returned? It was impossible. She hardly knew herself. Then the great wave of relief rolled over her. He was in England. One day she would see him, there, in the great room. For these colloquies with Edith Ethel always took place in the great room where she had last seen Teachens. It looked suddenly beautiful, and she was resigned to sitting there, waiting for the distinguished. It was, indeed, a beautiful room. It had become so during the years. It was long and high, matching the Teachens. A great cut-glass chandelier from the rectory hung dimly coruscating in the centre, reflected and re-reflected in convex gilt mirrors topped by eagles. A great number of books had gone to make place on the white-panelled walls for the mirrors and for the fair orange and brown pictures by Turner, also from the rectory. From the rectory had come the immense scarlet and lapis lazuli carpet, the great brass fire-basket and appendages, the great curtains that, in the three long windows, on their peacock-blue Chinese silk, showed parti-coloured cranes ascending in long flights, and all the polished Chippendale armchairs. Amongst all these, gracious, trailing, stopping with a tender gesture to rearrange very slightly the crimson roses in the famous silver bowls, still in dark blue silks, with an amber necklace and her elaborate black hair, waved exactly like that of Julia Domner of the Musée Lapidaire at Arles, moved Mrs. McMaster, also from the rectory. McMaster had achieved his desire, even to the shortbread cakes and the peculiarly scented tea that came every Friday morning from Princess Street. And if Mrs. McMaster hadn't the porky, relishing humour of the great Scots ladies of past days, she had in exchange her deep aspect of comprehension and tenderness. An astonishingly beautiful and impressive woman, dark hair, dark straight eyebrows, a straight nose, dark blue eyes and the shadows of her hair and bowed pomegranate lips in a chin curved like the bow of a Greek boat. The etiquette of the place on Fridays was regulated as if by a royal protocol. The most distinguished and, if possible, titled person was led to a great walnut-wood fluted chair that stood askew by the fireplace, its back and seat of blue velvet, heaven knows how old. Over him would hover Mrs. Dusherman, or, if he were very distinguished, both Mr. and Mrs. McMaster. The not-so-distinguished were led up by turns to be presented to the celebrity, and would then arrange themselves in a half-circle in the beautiful armchairs, the less distinguished still in outer groups in chairs that had no arms. The almost undistinguished stood also in groups, or languished awestruck on the scarlet leather window seats. When all were there, McMaster would establish himself on the incredibly unique hearthrug and would address wise sayings to the celebrity, occasionally, however, saying a kind thing to the youngest man present to give him a chance of distinguishing himself. McMaster's hair at that date was still black, but not quite so stiff or so well brushed. His beard had in it greyish streaks, and his teeth, not being quite so white, looked less strong. He wore also a single eyeglass, the retaining of which in his right eye gave him a slightly agonised expression. It gave him, however, the privilege of putting his face very close to the face of anyone upon whom he wished to make a deep impression. 
he had lately become much interested in the drama, so that there were usually several large and, of course, very reputable and serious actresses in the room. On rare occasions, Mrs. Dusherman would say across the room in her deep voice, Valentine, a cup of tea for his highness, or Sir Thomas, as the case might be. And when Valentine had threaded her way through the chairs with a cup of tea, Mrs. Dusherman, with a kind, aloof smile, would say, Your Highness, this is my little brown bird. But, as a rule, Valentine sat alone at the tea-table, the guests fetching from her what they wanted. Teachens came to the Fridays twice during the five months of his stay at Ealing. On each occasion, he accompanied Mrs. Warnop. In earlier days, during the earliest Fridays, Mrs. Wanup, if she ever came, had always been installed with her flowing black in the throne and, like an enlarged Queen Victoria, had sat there whilst suppliants were led up to this great writer. But now, on the first occasion, Mrs. Wanup got a chair without arms and the outer ring, whilst a general officer commanding lately in chief somewhere in the east, whose military successes had not been considerable, but whose dispatches were considered very literary, occupied rather blazingly the throne. But Mrs. Wanup had chatted very contentedly all the afternoon with Teachens, and it had been comforting to Valentine to see Teachens' large, uncouth, but quite collected figure, and to observe the affection that these two had for each other. But on the second occasion, the throne was occupied by a very young woman who talked a great deal, and with great assurance. Valentine didn't know who she was. Mrs. Wanup, very gay and distracted, stood nearly the whole afternoon by a window. And even at that, Valentine was contented, quite a number of young men crowding round the old lady and leaving the younger one's circle rather bare. There came in a very tall, clean-run and beautiful fair woman, dressed in nothing in particular. She stood with extreme, with noticeable, unconcern near the doorway. She let her eyes rest on Valentine, but looked away before Valentine could speak. She must have had an enormous quantity of fair, tawny hair, for it was coiled in a great surface over her ears. She had in her hand several visiting cards, which she looked at with a puzzled expression and then laid on a card table. She was no one who had ever been there before. Edith Ethel, it was for the second time, had just broken up the ring that surrounded Mrs. Wanup, bearing the young men tributary to the young woman in the walnut chair and leaving Teachens and the older woman high and dry in a window. Thus Teachin saw the stranger, and there was no doubt left in Valentine's mind. He came diagonally right down the room to his wife, and marched her straight up to Edith Ethel. His face was perfectly without expression. McMaster, perched on the centre of the hearthrug, had an emotion that was extraordinarily comic to witness, but that Valentine was quite unable to analyse. He jumped two paces forward to meet Mrs. Teachens, held out a little hand, half withdrew it, retreated half a step. The eyeglass fell from his perturbed eye. This gave him actually an expression less perturbed, but in revenge the hairs on the back of his scalp grew suddenly untidy. Sylvia, wavering along beside her husband, held out her long arm and careless hand. McMaster winced almost at the contact as if his fingers had been pinched in a vice. 
Sylvia wavered desultorily towards Edith Ethel, who was suddenly small, insignificant and relatively coarse. As for the young woman celebrity in the armchair, she appeared to be about the size of a white rabbit. A complete silence had fallen on the room. Every woman in it was counting the pleats of Sylvia's skirt and the amount of material in it. Valentine Wannup knew that because she was doing it herself. If one had that amount of material and that number of pleats, one's skirt might hang like that. For it was extraordinary. It fitted close round the hips and gave an effect of length and swing, yet it did not descend as low as the ankles. It was, no doubt, the amount of material that did that, like the Highlander's kilt that takes twelve yards to make. And from the silence, Valentine could tell that every woman, and most of the men, if they didn't know that this was Mrs. Christopher Teachens, knew that this was a personage of illustrated weekly, as who should say, of county family, rank. Little Mrs. Swan, lately married, actually got up, crossed the room, and sat down beside her bridegroom. It was a movement with which Valentine could sympathise. And Sylvia, having just faintly greeted Mrs. Dusherman and completely ignored the celebrity in the armchair, in spite of the fact that Mrs. Dusherman had tried half-heartedly to effect an introduction, stood still, looking round her. She gave the effect of a lady in a nurseryman's hothouse, considering what flower should interest her, collectively ignoring the nurserymen who bowed round her. She had just dropped her eyelashes twice, in recognition of two staff officers with a good deal of scarlet streak about them who were tentatively rising from their chairs. The staff officers who came to the McMasters were not of the first vintages, still they had the labels and passed as such. Valentine was by that time beside her mother, who had been standing all alone between two windows. She had dispossessed, in hot indignation, a stout musical critic of his chair and had sat her mother in it. And just as Mrs. Dusherman's deep voice sounded, yet a little waveringly, Valentine, a cup of tea for... Valentine was carrying a cup of tea to her mother. Her indignation had conquered her despairing jealousy, if you could call it jealousy. For what was the good of living or loving when Teachens had beside him forever the radiant, kind and gracious perfection? On the other hand, of her two deep passions, the second was for her mother. Rightly or wrongly, Valentine regarded Mrs. Wannup as a great and august figure, a great brain, a high and generous intelligence. She had written at least one great book, and if the rest of her time had been frittered away in the desperate struggle to live that had taken both their lives, that could not detract from that one achievement that should last and forever take her mother's name down time. That this greatness should not weigh with the McMasters had hitherto neither astonished nor irritated Valentine. The McMasters had their game to play, and for the matter of that they had their predilections. Their game kept them amongst the officially influential, the semi-official and the officially accredited. They moved with such CBs, knights, presidents and the rest as dabbled in writing or the arts. They went upwards with such reviewers, art critics, musical writers and archaeologists as had posts in, if possible, first-class public offices or permanent positions on the more august periodicals. 
If an imaginative author seemed assured of position and lasting popularity, McMaster would send out feelers towards him, would make himself humbly useful, and sooner or later either Mrs. Dusherman would be carrying on with him one of her high-salt correspondences, or she wouldn't. Mrs. Wanup they had formerly accepted as permanent leader-writer and chief critic of a great organ, but the great organ having dwindled and now disappeared, the McMasters no longer wanted her at their parties. That was the game, and Valentine accepted it. But that it should have been done with such insolence, so obviously meant to be noted, for in twice breaking up Mrs. Wanup's little circle, Mrs. Dusherman had not even once so much as said, How do you do to the elder lady? That was almost more than Valentine could for the moment bear, and she would have taken her mother away at once and would never have re-entered the house but for the compensations. Her mother had lately written and even found a publisher for a book, and the book had showed no signs of failing powers. On the contrary, having been perforce stopped off the perpetual journalism that had dissipated her energies, Mrs. Wanup had turned out something that Valentine knew was sound, sane and well done. Abstractions caused by failing attention to the outside world are not necessarily in a writer signs of failing as a writer. It may mean merely that she is giving so much thought to her work that her other contacts suffer. If that is the case, her work will gain. That this might be the case with her mother was Valentine's great and secret hope. Her mother was barely sixty. Many great works had been written by writers aged between sixty and seventy. And the crowding of youngish men round the old lady had given Valentine a little confirmation of that hope. The book, naturally, in the maelstrom flux and reflux of the time, had attracted little attention, and poor Mrs. Wanup had not succeeded in extracting a penny for it from her adamantine publisher. She hadn't, indeed, made a penny for several months, and they existed almost at starvation point in their little den of a villa on Valentine's earnings as athletic teacher but that little bit of attention in that semi-public place had seemed, at least, as a confirmation to Valentine. There probably was something sound, sane and well done in her mother's work. That was almost all she asked of life. And indeed, whilst she stood by her mother's chair, thinking with a little bit of pathos that if Edith Ethel had left the three or four young men to her mother, the three or four might have done her poor mother a little good, with innocent puffs and the like and heaven knew they needed that little good badly enough. A very thin and untidy young man did drift back to Mrs. Wanup and asked precisely if he might make a note or two for publication as to what Mrs. Wanup was doing. Her book, he said, had attracted so much attention they hadn't known that they had still writers among them. A singular, triangular drive had begun through the chairs from the fireplace. That was how it had seemed to Valentine. Mrs. Teachens had looked at them, had asked Christopher a question, and immediately, as if she were coming through waist-high surf, had borne down McMaster and Mrs. Dusherman, flanking her obsequiously, setting aside chairs and their occupants, Teachens and the two rather bashfully following staff officers broadening out the wedge. Sylvia, her long arm held out from a yard or so away, was giving her hand to Valentine's mother. With her clear, high, unembarrassed voice, she exclaimed, also from a yard or so away, so as to be heard by everyone in the room, You're Mrs. Wanup, the great writer. I'm Christopher Teachin's wife. 
End of part two, chapter four, section two.